Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BIOREPORT. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The ability to identify diseases at their earliest stages through the detection of minute levels of biomarkers offers the potential to make interventions before the outward physical manifestations of illnesses can bloom and long-term damage can occur. Quanterix is developing a platform of ultra-sensitive biomarker tests to give researchers greater insight into the transition from health to disease and the ability to detect diseases at an earlier point in their development. We spoke to Kevin Rosofsky, Chairman, President, and CEO of Quanterix, about the company's ability to detect minute amounts of biomarkers, the implications this has for drug development and diagnostics, and how this can help drive a future of precision health. Kevin, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dan. We're going to talk about precision medicine, Quanterix, and its efforts to use its ability to detect biomarkers in the blood to allow for better diagnosis and early interventions in neurologic, oncologic, and other conditions. Perhaps we should start with the notion of precision medicine, though. What's meant by the term and how big a gulf is there today between medical practices, most patients experience it, and the potential for a precision medicine approach to transform how patients are diagnosed and treated. Yeah, hey, I think the golf is pretty big, and we actually call it precision health as opposed to precision medicine, mainly because the scope of what we think is possible actually gets into preventing disease where no medicine would ever be needed. So the precision health concept is both using medicines that are prescribed and are perfectly suited to you know, really attack the disease or the condition that a person has, but also 
longer term, being able to avoid the, the disease altogether by the way we live our lives and avoiding the disease triggers that many times are what are the, the real source of the disease. Well, what do you see as the reason for that gulf? Is it simply a matter of taking the abilities we have today and crafting the clinical tools needed to apply them? Or does it also involve cultural, institutional, financial barriers? Well, you know, I think that it starts normally with technology that has got the ability to reach in and achieve something that today's technologies cannot reach. But once you have a technology or a vision for a technology that could trans transform healthcare, you then have a lot of these other components that not that must be, you know, found a way, you must find a way to to traverse. And that could be the, the financial side, it could be the cultural side, the adoption. Um, there's so many things that can get in the way of a great technology or a technological vision and fulfilling it. So I know I would say that we have a very strong vision for something very simple, which is extremely early detection of biomarkers and or disease non-invasively. And that has transcended into different types of technologies now that are able to achieve that. And when we say measuring biomarkers non-invasively, we mean measuring them in blood or saliva. And when we say measuring disease very early in its cascade, in the case of, of Alzheimer's, we mean as maybe as early as 15 to 20 years before dementia hits. So the key here is to see diseases long before they present with symptoms. And by doing so, we think you have created a much better chance to intervene and stop the lethalness of the disease. And then longer term, those same biomarkers might be able to reveal ways that you could live your life to actually never trigger the disease in the first place. And, and we think that will be the, the ultimate golden grail. Quinterix is serving the research sector today. Its Samoa technology allows scientists to detect proteins at very low levels. How sensitive is its ability? Yeah, that's a, you know an interesting question because over the years, we've come up with some ways to describe it. It'd be like seeing a single grain of sand in 2,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. To give you a sense of what we can see is almost at a single molecule level. And so many times these proteins in your blood or in your saliva are at such low concentrations that you would actually need to have almost like rocket science in order to be able to see those proteins when they're at very low levels, almost equivalent to a single grain of sand in 2000 Olympic sized swimming pools. One of the issues with having a greater ability to detect biomarkers at such a low level is understanding their meaning. What has to be done to, to validate a biomarker and how predictive is a biomarker at ultra low levels of the actual onset of a disease? It's interesting. There's two places that we have found to be kind of fertile territory for validating biomarkers. One place is where there's already existing evidence that a biomarker is highly clinically relevant. And small example would be troponin for the heart. If you have a massive heart attack, you will actually end up with a lot of troponin in your blood 
that today's ultra-sensitive technologies are able to measure only six hours after a major heart attack because the troponin keeps getting pumped into the blood and the concentration keeps increasing to a point where today's technologies can see it. So one place that we've looked at are places where there's already known clinical uh, validation, like in troponin, and saying, what if we could see it when you're healthy as well as when you're diseased? That means you would need to go down magnitudes, many um, magnitudes in the dynamic range of being able to see troponin at, at very, very low levels when you're healthy because they don't elevate typically until you have the disease. And so that is one category where we started where it's very fertile is known biomarkers, but now trying to see the entire continuum from healthiness to disease and any movement from healthy in that baseline at healthy represents the movement towards the disease. So that's one category. A second category is looking where there might be another part of the body that has high levels of concentration of the, of, of the biomarker of interest that you could then move into a less invasive sample and still see that biomarker and correlate it to where the biomarker is in high concentrations because that is probably where it's been shown to be relevant is in the high concentrations. And one great example of this is in neuro and the whole, the whole field of neurodegeneration. There's this fluid that's about three pints per person that surrounds the brain and goes up and down the spine called the cerebral spinal fluid, CSF for short. There's also six quarts of blood, and there's this barrier called the blood-brain barrier that separates the cerebral spinal fluid, which is three pints, to the six quarts of blood. So what we've learned over the years is that there are technologies that can measure and can create clinical validation of the relevance of a protein in the cerebral spinal fluid because the concentration is very high. But once it crosses the blood-brain barrier and goes into six quarts of blood, it becomes much less concentrated. And that there's where it takes technologies like ours to be able to see it in blood or then to see it in saliva where it's even less concentrated. So the less invasive the sample, the lower the concentration. So if you could go to where the concentration is very high, prove out the clinical validity, and then try to find that same protein in less invasive samples, then you can create a significant amount of utility for that particular biomarker. And so in neurology, we now know that there's about 15 different biomarkers that you can measure using a spinal tap, which is probably $5,000 to $10,000 per test. It's very painful. It's very invasive. And, it's, and it can actually um, hurt you as a person. So many people would never want to have a spinal tap. It's a very invasive procedure. But if you can see those same proteins and correlate it in blood or saliva, now you've got a breakthrough because it's very easy to extract blood or to take a saliva sample. And there's where we have found a lot of the neurological biomarkers and been able to correlate them to the level that's in the cerebral spinal fluid. And then the level in the cerebral spinal fluid, it's been actually correlated to disease. So if you have, for instance, the Alzheimer cascade, certain biomarkers will begin to elevate in the CSF, and then they will traverse over into the blood. And now we are able to see in blood many of these biomarkers and have correlated it to what was in the cerebral spinal fluid. So it's now given scientists an extraordinarily almost magical way now 
to understand brain health by measuring and researching these biomarkers using our technology in blood and saliva. As you think about conditions like cancer and neurodegenerative diseases, how important is the ability to intervene early in these conditions? How does early diagnosis affect outcomes? It's, it's still somewhat of an uncharted area, but there are absolute test points, particularly in cancer and oncology, that if you can identify a cancer when it's in stage one, the ability for drugs to manage that cancer or for surgical intervention to manage that cancer are significantly higher. So your life expectancy can be a lot longer your survival rate could be a lot longer if you can find the cancers very early. The challenge is, is that when you don't find the cancers, like particularly certain types of cancers that don't present symptoms until they're very lethal in the stage four, pancreatic cancer is a good example, brain cancer, lung cancer, other examples. Many times there's no symptoms until the cancer has traversed all the way into stage four. So if you could find those cancers in stage one, you could change the outcome and the, and the ability to keep someone alive longer. And so there is evidence in oncology that the earlier you find the disease, the better chance you have of treating it. So we actually think the same is going to be true in neurodegeneration. If you can find the disease when it's still like a match in the body versus when there, you know, there are symptoms like dementia is more like the analogy would be now it's a raging forest fire. By the time the disease is a raging forest fire and it presents with symptoms, it's very, very difficult to reverse those symptoms. But if you can find it really early, maybe 10 to 15 years earlier, when it's still just a match, the, the belief is in the analogy is, is that it's easier to blow out a match than it is to blow out a raging forest fire. And so there is the beginnings of evidence in, in the Alzheimer's cascades that some of these drugs can stop the progression of the actual Alzheimer's pathology, but they can't reverse it. So if you can detect it really early, long before there's any symptoms that are, are, that are really debilitating like dementia, then maybe you can arrest it at that stage and for the rest of your life, you never would get dementia. And so maybe Alzheimer's wouldn't be so bad if you can get it early and stop its progression. So that's the concept. Same with AOS, same with Parkinson's, same with MS. There's evidence that the earlier you get it, the faster you get yourself on treatments to stop the progression, the longer you can live in without having to use a wheelchair, for instance, in, in MS. And so this is the new area of focus is using these biomarkers particularly in places like MS where there's already 16 approved drugs and try to help the patient make sure they're on a drug that is actually arresting the MS. Many times a drug doesn't work and you'd like to know that quickly so then you can try a different drug. That's true in the category of MS where there's many approved drugs, but in the category of Alzheimer's, there isn't an approved drug yet. So there we're helping researchers see the disease very early so they can recruit patients into their drug trial cohorts that are very early stage to give the drug a chance to stop the progression. We also can eliminate different types of dementias using the same type of, of technology. Researchers are able to stratify out 
different types of dementia that are not Alzheimer's where the drug won't work. For instance, Lewy body's dementia or frontal temporal dementia, or even those that might have had chemotherapy might have dementia, but that's unrelated to Alzheimer's. And so if you can remove those patients from the drug trial cohort, you increase the probability that the drug will be efficacious and be approved. So these are the types of techniques that are being deployed in both areas where the drugs are already improved in MS, trying to manage the residual disease and trying to get the patient on the right drug quicker, or in places where there's no drug approved, using the technologies to increase the probability that the drug will be approved using a drug trial. And once those drugs get approved, our view is, is that researchers will then want to quickly move downstream and then test everybody to see if we can find these diseases very early once there's drugs that can arrest them. I, I suspect a, a case could be made that one of the reasons it's been so hard for drugs to win approval for Alzheimer's is because it's been dealing with patients that have relatively advanced stages of the disease as opposed to getting to them early enough. But you're using neurofilament light chain to detect the condition. How good an indicator is this for Alzheimer's disease and how present does it have to be before you can say someone has the disease? You're asking a really interesting question. And one of the first um, components of the answer is it that certain biomarkers can't differentiate what's creating the neurodegeneration. They can only tell you that the neurodegeneration has, uh, has occurred. It's almost like the cholesterol of the brain. You know, you can measure cholesterol and know how much cholesterol a person has, but you don't know for sure what's causing the elevated cholesterol. So NFL, neurofilament light, happens to be one of those biomarkers that's not specific to any disease. It just tells you that you got neurodegeneration occurring. So it's kind of like an engine light going off saying, you've got a problem in your engine, but you're gonna to have to hire a mechanic to figure out what that, that problem is. So neurofilament light, no matter what causes the neurodegeneration or the killing of neurons at a pace faster than age itself, our technology can differentiate and say, you've got something that's creating the death of neurons faster than age should. And that could be concussions, CTE from concussions. It could be Parkinson's. It could be MS. It could be Alzheimer's. And so there's a lot of different things that could, or diseases or conditions that could impair and kill neurons. NFL tells you that that's occurring at a pace faster than what the normal aging processes do. Now, there's other biomarkers that we can add to NFL that can actually tell you what it is that is likely, that is like, can tell researchers what it is that's likely creating the death of the neurons. And so some of these newer biomarkers called phosphorylated tals and amyloid beta um, and GFAP, these are other biomarkers that are specific to the type of, um, of neurodegeneration. Um, syn synuclein alpha is another one. So these might be more linked to, say, Parkinson's. And so if you've got high NFL levels and you now want to understand what it is that's causing that neuronal death, you then use these other biomarkers to try to figure that out. So part of what researchers are currently working on is developing multiplexes where you'll have multiple biomarkers being tested at the same time 
so that if you do have elevation in one of them, like NFL, and you want to now know what's causing it, these other biomarkers are in the panel in order to help you define the actual cause. So I hope that's um, helpful for you to understand that NFL itself, we know what is a high level of NFL based on a lot of normative studies of, of, of people from ages 7 to 70 that are healthy. We can understand that NFL levels should elevate as you get older, but if they go, if they elevate faster than the pace of age, that's when you now know you've got some type of issue that you really want to better understand. And that's when the other biomarkers can help you get specific to what's creating that disease. In the area of oncology, it's not unusual today to see tumors profiled and for treatments to be selected based on that. You say your technology has the potential to be used to monitor cancer risk and identify early stage cancers. Can you explain how it can be used? Yes, in the area of cancers, um, strategically, what we have concluded is that there's a better way for us to work with partners than to do it ourselves or to further evolve our own panels. And what, we, what we've learned is, is that certain types of cancers present different types of protein signatures. And many times the immune system itself, which is made up of what we call cytokines, which there's interleukins and interferons, these are different types of cytokines. What some of the new cancer drugs are attempting to do, because cancer has evaded our immune system many times, and so our immune system is not fighting the cancer. So some of the newer immunotherapies basically um, are triggering the immune system to see the cancer so that the immune system starts to battle the cancer. And it does that by elevating, upregulating certain cytokines that really then attack the cancers. And so we're working with many of the drug companies in an area to try to have them better understand when upregulation of the immune system and which specific cytokines get upregulated are evidence to tell you that this drug is having good efficacy for the patient. And so we've learned um, that there are certain signatures and many of the researchers we're working with are continuing to define different types of signatures of cytokines so that they can get a better prediction of whether the drug will be efficacious and and save and protect the, the patient, which only typically happens 10 to 20% of the time, or will the actual drug not work for the patient, which means, which is most of the time, the majority of the time, it doesn't work. The sooner you can find that out, the less money you waste and the more um, toxicity you remove from putting into the patient. Sometimes, believe it or not, these immunotherapies can actually trigger what's called cytokine storm. Same thing that COVID has triggered in many patients. That leads then to uh, death and many times pneumonia. And so sometimes the drug itself, which is intended to help the patient, can actually kill the patient. And so um, the sooner you can see a signature that would su suggest that that patient's in harm's way, the faster you can stop giving that patient that drug. And so those are the types of ways today our technologies are being looked at from researchers to try to help them better uh, manage and develop immunotherapies. Someday, however, we do think that there are going to be protein signatures that will um, only happen when the cancers are at their very early stages. 
and that through good blood testing and correlation studies, we'll be able to measure these biomarkers and be able to, just like in Alzheimer's and some of these other neurodegenerative diseases, tell the doctors that this patient um, likely has begun a cascade, a pathology in cancer early enough that they can intervene and, and do something about it. So we're pretty excited about early detection using biomarkers, but we're also um, very interested to manage drugs so that they give the best benefit to the patient without hurting the patient. Oh, what's the business model today and how do you see that evolving? Do you see yourself moving into becoming a, a diagnostics company? Do you see yourself developing companion diagnostics with, with drugs? Yeah, so interestingly, in the landscape of neurology where there are certain key categories like Alzheimer's, which is one of the largest diseases in the world, there's never been an approved drug. And so because our biomarkers can play a role in helping these drugs gain approval by the way we described earlier with seeing it earlier and stratifying out different types of dementia that the drug won't work for. We actually um, today are using these biomarkers working with drug companies to help them get a drug across the goal line. And these drug companies also are very interested to ensure that if their drug gets approved, that there'll be a way for them to be able to measure um, at a low cost and high throughput and make it easy for patients, be able to measure Alzheimer's easy early so that they could move these patients into the drug that the drug can work on. But many times this will be long before dementia. And so we actually think that once an Alzheimer drug gets approved, there'll be a lot of interest from the pharma companies as well as the FDA to then have a test to let people know that they have Alzheimer's because now there'll be a drug to do something about it at a time long before dementia hits. And so someday we actually think that becoming a, a diagnostic company to support those new drugs that get invented in Alzheimer's would make a lot of sense. And that's why we're focused initially on neuro because many of these pharma companies want to team up with us to try to help get their drugs approved and then ultimately to have a companion diagnostic or a diagnostic to help move the patients into the drug and then to make sure that the drug is working by measuring the biomarkers. And so we actually think someday we could be both, which today we're you know 99% research company, someday based on our own success, we could move into diagnostics as well. At this point, is there a pipeline of those products? There is. We just launched um, one called phosphorylated tau 181, which has been shown by some of the leading neurologists in Europe to be able to stratify out Lewy body's dementia and frontal temporal dementia for enhancing the cohort of the drug company's trial. They also have been shown um, several of the phosphorylated tau's as well as NFL have been elevated in familial Alzheimer patients where they they happen to know based on the patient's genes when it is that they're going to likely get dementia in their lifetime. And so by measuring across a large cohort of those familial Alzheimer patients, they've been able to see just how early the NFL and the phosphorylated tau's elevate. And what they've been able to decipher thus far is, is that 15 to 16 years before the dementia is projected to hit in those familial Alzheimer patients, they're seeing the beginnings of elevation of NFL and phosphorylated tau. So that's the beginning 
of, of them correlating the possibilities of seeing the disease very early. So that, that's the other you know, major category that we're um, using the, the, the phosphorylated tau 181, as well as the NFL and the amyloid betas, is to, is to recruit patients early and also to stratify out those um, diseases that are not going to be beneficial. And so we keep um, having a pipeline of new phosphorylated towels that we're looking at. Uh, phosphorylated towel 217, 231, and 235 are currently being explored. So those will all be in our pipeline of exploration. And you need a, exquisite levels of sensitivity when you look at these um, modified protein, these protein modifications that are subsets of like the overall tauopathy. They're, they're actually in concentration so low that you need this exquisite sensitivity to be able to measure it, sometimes even in the cerebral spinal fluid, let alone measuring it in blood or saliva where the concentrations even go lower. So, yes, we're, we've got a strong pipeline in, in neurology, and we continue to invest heavily in that, in that area. Kevin Rusofsky, President, CEO, and Chairman of Quanterix. Kevin, thanks so much for your time today. Dan, this has been really, uh, really enjoyable to exchange with you. And thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.